You are listening to the Global Politics of Counterterrorism, a podcast series from the International Center for Counterterrorism. In this series, we explore recent geopolitical shifts and the impact on human rights and the counterterrorism agenda. Hi, my name is Alexander von Rosenbach, and I'm the business manager at the International Center for Counterterrorism. I'm also the host of ICCT's new podcast series, The Global Politics of Counterterrorism. Today, I'm joined by Mark Hecker. Mark is the Director of Research and Communications, as well as the Editor-in-Chief at the French Institute of International Relations. He's also a research fellow at the Security Studies Center and co-author of a recent book called La Guerre de Vingt Ans, an excellent post-mortem on the global war on terror. Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I want to start our conversation um, getting to know you and your own professional journey a little bit. We have a lot of uh, folks who are at different stages in their own careers, and I think it's always useful to, um, when we have experts, uh, to learn a little bit more about their own professional journeys. Would you mind uh, explaining to our listeners how you got into the field of, of counterterrorism? Sure. Well, I was a, a student when 9-11 occurred. I was studying political science and international relations. I was then an Erasmus student in Trinity College, Dublin, and uh, I saw it live on TV. And of course, as many people, I was shocked by what happened and understood that it was a, a defining moment, a turning point in current international affairs. And I wanted to understand this event. I had not the opportunity to immediately start studying uh, terrorism, uh, but I studied and focused a lot on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So I actually started a, a PhD, well, first an MA thesis and then a PhD dissertation on the consequences of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in France. And then at the time I was a, a PhD student at the Sorbonne University in Paris, And I had a great chance and opportunity to get a, a PhD grant that allowed me to be recruited by IFRI, the French Institute mm. for International Relations. That's the main think tank in France dealing with international affairs. I still uh, work uh, at IFRI today, mm -hmm. uh, and I've been working there for the past 15 years or so, even more than that. Uh, so uh, at IFRI, actually, at the time, there was uh, no single expert working on terrorism. So there was a security studies center and people interested in terrorism, uh, but there was not a single expert dedicated only on terrorism issues. Uh, so actually, they asked me if I wanted to be this person. So that was a great opportunity. Of course, I said yes. Uh, and uh, I spent a good part of my time working on my PhD dissertation and uh, the other part of my time working on, on terrorism. So basically, the idea was at the time, so it was just uh, after the, the Madrid bombing and just before the London bombing. And so the idea was to understand the evolution of Al-Qaeda uh, and uh, of terrorism at the time, to understand how... Europe uh, could be struck, how France could be struck. Uh, and, um, and I not immediately got research projects because it's, it's not that easy when you are a very young researcher to get your own research contracts. So it took me a year or so. And my first research contract was actually not writing a study, uh, but it was uh, the preparation of Uh, crisis management exercises, terrorist crisis management exercises. And basically I wrote the scenarios and I played the red team. And the idea was to, to try and train the first responders. Uh, I'm 
in the police, uh, the, the fire brigades, the, uh, the doctors and so on, but also those who really manage the crisis at the political level. Yeah. So that was really a, a very interesting experience, of course. Uh, and then uh, I had the opportunity to work on different studies on the communication of terrorist groups, for instance. Uh, I had the the great uh, chance to meet and work with Thomas Reed, who is now a professor at Johns Hopkins University. And we he, he was actually a, a postdoc at IFRI at some point of his career. Uh, and uh, we wrote a book together in 2009, I think, called War 2.0, Irregular Warfare in the Information Age. That was about the communication of insurgents compared to the communication of armed forces engaged in counterinsurgency operation. And then there was this strange period at the end of the first decade of the 21st century where it was much more difficult to convince policymakers uh, and administrations that terrorism was still an important issue and that it was important to continue research on this topic. Uh, and uh, at the time I developed a project called Radicalization, Deradicalization. The idea was to study disengagement programs in different parts of the world related to jihadism, but also to far-right uh, extremism. And actually no one wanted to fund this project. Uh, that was in, in 2009, just after the publication of the, of the book that I mentioned. So actually this project was not done. Uh, we really tried hard at IFRI to get some funding, but we did not manage. And so for a short period, I, I continued working on terrorism issues, but I did not have specific research contracts. So I had also to work on other topics, and I worked more on, on communication, social media, the internet, and crisis management more broadly. Okay. And then there was the Arab Spring, the civil war in Syria, uh, the rise of Ansar al-Sharia in Tunisia as well, uh, and uh, terrorism became, uh, again, uh, let me use this term, even though it's not the right one, fashionable. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it was easier also to get some funding. And then unfortunately also, of course, uh, ISIS uh, struck Europe, struck France particularly hardly. And so uh, I started to publish more and more on terrorism in Europe and in France. So in 2015, I published a report on social, the use of social media by ISIS uh, and how to try and counter the narrative and how to try and counter this phenomenon in general. Um, and then I also tried to use court uh, reports and court decisions to try and write another study on the profiles of terrorists in France. And it was published in 2018 and actually uh, translated into English. It's called 137 Shades of Terrorism. Uh, based on the profiles of 137 individuals sentenced in France on, on terrorism charges. And then I just mentioned two more projects. So uh, one of them was the evaluation of the French disengagement program. So I was in charge of, of this evaluation. Uh, it was finished in 2021, early 2021, and published uh, on IFRI's website. Uh, the title of this study that was also translated into English is Once a Jihadist, Always a Jihadist? Question mark. Hmm. Uh, Important. <laughs> yeah. uh, and the other project is the one that you mentioned in, in your introduction. It's this book that I co-authored with my colleague Elie Tenenbaum, La Guerre de 20 ans, The 20 Years' War. And here the idea was really to first write the study of this 20-year period because it has not been written. Uh, there are bits uh, that have been written by different authors. 
so that was the, the first idea. The second uh, idea was to show the strategic dynamics because we have a conflict with uh, terrorists on, on the one hand and armed forces, police uh, forces, uh, etc., that try to counter uh, the threat. Uh, and uh, it's important to show this, this, this strategic dynamic. Quite often, at least in France, the field was divided between the specialists of terrorism on the one hand and on the response on the other hand. And for us, it was important to, to show that actually uh, when terrorists move, actually uh, the CT forces react. And on the other hand, when we try to prevent an attack, then the terrorists react. And the third uh, idea was really to try and learn the lessons uh, from, from this period. And we divided actually the book into five periods. And in the end of each period, we wrote three or four pages of lessons learned. Well, thanks for that, Mark. Uh, really interesting to hear your professional journey. Indeed, uh, I think you're not alone. I know uh, here at ICCT, many folks also were influenced to move in this direction, uh, living through the events of 9-11 in their sort of formative years. But to focus now on the main discussion, um, and indeed to pick up on that last point you made, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, um, indeed, the history of the, the last 20 years. If we can sort of summarize the key findings from your book, um, can you identify uh, some of those key lessons for us? And along the way, given the title of this podcast, can you give us a glimpse of what uh, particularly Russia and China were doing as the West was uh, focused uh, in to varying degrees on, on the CT phenomenon? Yeah, I'll focus on the last part of your question. Otherwise, I think it will be too long and there are actually other podcasts really focused on the book. So <laughs> if uh, your listeners are really interested in that, they can try and find other, other sources. <laughs> we'll put some uh, yeah. links in the show notes for you. There. Uh, so, well, basically the five periods were the, the following. First, 2001 to 2006. So that's really the aftermath uh, of 9-11, the beginning of the global war of, on, on terror. So this new strategic cycle. Uh, that lasted for 20 years, uh, and it ended in 2006. Uh, so during this period, you, you have, of course, the war in Afghanistan, you have the, the war in Iraq, a civil war uh, that develops in, in Iraq. Uh, the situation becomes really chaotic. Uh, and during this period, when really the U.S. security apparatus and foreign policy, but not only the U.S., I mean, it was also the case for the main allies of the United States. Uh, so they, they really become focused uh, on terrorism and counterterrorism. It really becomes the uh, main raison d'être uh, almost of their security apparatus and their foreign policy. During this period, so you have China that is actually not at all focused on, on CT, that becomes a member of uh, the World Trade Organization actually in 2001, and that starts uh, raising uh, economically. Uh, with a really an impressive economic development uh, during this 20-year period. And China manages to uh, move from a status of uh, uh, developing countries to uh, a status of uh, global superpower uh, in a global competition with the, the U.S. And so you have more and more this narrative in, in the U.S., but also in Europe, that while the U.S. were focused uh, on CT, um, it was actually a kind of a diversion from the main security challenge of the 21st century, that is the rise of China. If you have a look at Russia, the situation is very different. Actually, Russia was already involved in counter-terrorism and counter 
counterinsurgency operations before 9-11. There were the wars in, in Chechnya. And uh, uh, Russia was really heavily criticized for the way it conducted its operations in, in uh, Chechnya uh, with massive human rights violations. And when 9-11 occurred, actually, Russia tried to take advantage of the situation to explain basically that we were all in the same boat. We had the same enemy, uh, explaining that there were actually not many differences between insurgents in Chechnya and Al-Qaeda leaders. Um, of course, this can be debated and, and discussed, but that's the way Russia tried to be, in a way, included in the global war on terror framework. Um, then the next period started in 2006 and ended in 2011, and basically that's the counterinsurgency era. So in 2006, uh, you have a, a change in strategy uh, in, in the U.S., with uh, the publication of the Field Manual 324 uh, dedicated to counterinsurgency operations. And the US really managed to change the way it approached this kind of, of wars. And with a combination of events, including the, the surge uh, in Iraq uh, and uh, the fact that they also managed to uh, attract several uh, Sunni tribes uh, in, in Iraq as well, uh, the US actually pretty well managed to stabilize the, the situation in the, in the country. And during this period, 2006-2011, there were important events, actually, uh, that were not directly related to CT or counterinsurgency. You had in 2008 the financial crisis. And with this financial crisis, actually, in the US, you had more and more the narrative growing that it was important to do nation building at home to concentrate the resources in the U.S. to try and, and help the economy, to try and help re-industrialize certain neighborhoods and areas. And in 2008, it's also the period when Russia invades Georgia. So you already have uh, the growing negative uh, agency of Russia in Europe at the time. So... Actually, in 2008, you have the beginning of this idea that it would be probably wise to start and disengage from Iraq and Afghanistan, these costly words, uh, costly financially, but also from a human uh, point of view, with a lot of uh, soldiers being killed and also a lot of, uh, of course, local population. Um, but actually, the U.S. at the time do not manage to pivot to Asia. That was a, an expression that was popularized in 2011 by Hillary Clinton in a, in a well-known article. Uh, and they did not manage to pivot because there was a strategic surprise at the time, and it was the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring and uh, the situation that went, that evolved towards a civil war in, in Syria, especially, with the rise of uh, Jabhat al-Nusra and, and then uh, ISIS as well. So that's the third period of the book, 2011 to 2014. Again, there's an important uh, event at the time in, in 2014. Uh, that's uh, the invasion of Crimea uh, by, by Russia. So um, you see that yeah, this, this great power competition was not uh, at the forefront, but it was in a way already present at the background uh, at the time with sanctions at the time taken against uh, uh, Russia. Uh, while China was still 
really much uh, into the uh, globalization mindset and was benefiting a lot from globalization and started also to evolve from a, an economic point of view towards globalization, towards a more political uh, approach of this phenomenon, especially with the, the Belt and Road Initiative. Then, during this period, you also have important events like the war in Libya and the beginning of the war in Mali, the Operation Serval led by the, the French Armed Forces. Libya, I think, is a defining moment uh, because actually it was authorized by the Security Council. And if Russia and China did not use the, their veto power at the time, it's because I think they were convinced by the rhetoric that it was important to protect the, the population threatened by Gaddafi. Uh, but they did not have in mind that it could lead to a regime change. So afterwards, we heard a lot of criticisms, especially from Russians, um, explaining basically that there was a, an overreach uh, of the, the mission and that they had not authorized regime change. And they, if they had known that it would lead to the withdrawal of Gaddafi, they would probably have not authorized uh, such uh, an operation. Then you have the, the next period from 2014 to 2017, and that's really the peak of uh, ISIS external operations. And here uh, you have, of course, Europe that struck a lot. France uh, has paid a heavy price to terrorism uh, and also other European countries, of course, uh, including the Netherlands, where there were several terrorist attacks. Um, but Russia was also targeted. Uh, remember that in 2015, a civilian plane was shot down by uh, ISIS in the Sinai, killing more than 200 passengers. Uh, and in a way, we, we had the same enemy, but we did not want to fight this enemy together. So Russia was involved in military operations in Syria, uh, defending and protecting Bashar al-Assad regime, whereas the West didn't want to work with this regime uh, and created the global coalition uh, to uh, try and counter and defeat uh, ISIS. And Russia was not part of this global coalition. So there were, of course, uh, exchanges to uh, try and deconflict and you know, avoid uh, crossfires and things like that. But we were not part of the same coalition. And then the final period is from 2017 to 2021. Actually, the book was published in April 2021, so before the withdrawal uh, of US from Afghanistan. So the last period, we called it the strange victory, because at the time you had several leaders, including Trump, who explained that it was a, a victory that ISIS was defeated. And experts were saying, wait a minute, ISIS is actually not defeated. They lost their sanctuary, their territories, but they are still present. The ideology is still here. They've evolved towards uh, an insurgency mode. And then after uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and uh, the return of the Taliban to power, it became evident that it was not uh, a victory. And uh, uh, that's why also we try to explain that uh, we have to acknowledge that in a way this period uh, was at least partly a strategic failure. And we have to understand why to try and do better. Super, Mark, that's, uh, I think, an amazing summary of, of 20 years. Uh, it really... Um, I think is quite a feat to try and understand the threads, uh, not only of the CT landscape as it evolved, but also to weave in those, um, I guess, signs that we maybe took notice of as uh, the West, but didn't really 
put our finger on as, as something we needed to focus on until now uh you know we, we are clearly um regretful of of some of those oversights particularly in terms of russia and russian aggression um but you sort of landed on the point uh, that uh, indeed Afghan withdrawal um, was a defining moment to maybe end that last phase of uh, the global war on terror. Does it also, in your mind, um, mean a, a sort of a true end to what we would call Western-dominated or Western-oriented uh, global CT agenda? Is that sort of the the final exclamation mark on this 20-year war? Are, are we finished with this? Um, what? How do you view that? Well, I view it as the end of a strategic cycle. So this strategic cycle, the global war on terror, uh, lasted 20 years from 2001 to 2021, and now it's over. It doesn't mean that CT, counterterrorism, is over. Mm. Uh, and of course, it does not mean that the enemy has been defeated. So the threats are actually diverse, uh, and we have to continue and fight them. So it's not the end of the story, but it's the end of this strategic cycle. And now there's a new strategic cycle that is to say uh, a great power competition cycle or a strategic competition cycle uh, with uh, countries, especially China and Russia, that are perceived as uh, more and more aggressive. And we need to respond to, respond, sorry, to, this, uh, to this aggressiveness and to these potential threats. Uh, Russia and China actually do not represent the same kinds of challenges. Uh, and the way you framed your question, I think, is debata debatable because, yes, it's the end of the Western-dominated global war on terror, but I'm not sure that China and Russia will take over uh, on CT. Uh, they've actually had pretty different at attitudes toward uh, counterterrorism over the past years. China, as far as I know, was not heavily involved in city operations outside of China. And they had a domestic problem with several terrorist attacks uh, led by uh, certain radicalized groups linked to the Uyghurs population. But actually, they used this uh, as a way to lead a very heavy repression towards the Uyghur population in general. Yeah. Uh, so... Well, the, the reports, of course, are debated. The, the, the facts are not precisely known. But uh, what we can read is that there are between 1 million and 2 million individuals that are put in camps by the Chinese authorities to try and re-educate them. So as it was actually framed in an international security paper, I think in 2020, uh, they turned city into preventive repression of a uh, population in general. Uh, which is usually a big mistake to make in, in counter-terrorism operation. Or if you want actually to apply this logic, then you actually have to go to the end of this logic. And that's, of course, a pretty worrying perspective for Uyghur population in China. Um, but if you take, for instance, Syria, where there are actually uh, Uyghur fighters, Uh, the number, again, is discussed, but it's probably around 2,000, uh, mostly linked to Al-Qaeda, uh, around the Idlib pocket. Well, China did not intervene there militarily, uh, contrary to Russia, for instance. So that's why I say we have to differentiate Russia and China here. Uh, Russia was much more involved uh, within its own territory. I mentioned Chechnya before, uh, but also outside. Uh, I mean, they were involved militarily 
in Syria, it started really in 2015, and they sent troops there. Um, so there's a, there's an important difference that needs to be uh, highlighted. Russia is also more involved in, in militarily, I mean, or with Wagner at least, in, in Africa. We can talk about it later if you, if you want. China is more involved economically uh, in, in the Sahel region and other parts of, of Africa. Uh, so again, there's a, a difference here. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, maybe, indeed, to just pivot uh, a little bit, I mean, I, I think the, the point about the Uyghur population, and, and particularly as an institution that is focused on human rights and the rule of law, we are very concerned, and I, I know your institution as well, and many others, uh, concerned about, indeed, the use of repression and the, the uh, use of CT laws, international uh, frameworks, as an excuse to then over-securitize, and, and in the, the case of the Uyghurs, to the extreme, um, and, and yeah, I think that is an important lesson to take away as well from the from the last twenty years. We created a big architecture, and we didn't put a lot of accountability in to that, and that gives a lot of states freedom to apply those laws to um, whatever ends they see fit. And, and that is uh, obviously um, going awry uh, as an understatement in, in China. So thanks for drawing to that uh, that attention. Um, Maybe to just think of for a few minutes with you uh, on the Sahel side, and particularly since you have a good perspective on the French uh, on the French considerations there. Um, you've already mentioned it uh, a little bit that that's a changing security environment. You mentioned the Wagner Group more present there for listeners who are less aware. Indeed, there were multiple international operations there, uh, including uh, French forces, uh, and the French in particular were asked to withdraw by the Malian government and did so and were promptly replaced by Russian mercenaries, uh, particularly from the Wagner group. Um, subsequent to that, we know through international reporting that there have been several massacres, indeed some came to the fore even just last week, um, by these forces under the auspices of providing CT support. Um, and uh, yeah, we know that there is now a pattern of uh, human rights violations across the country linked to these uh, to these mercenary groups. Um, what does that tell us about? Is it sort of a harbinger of things to come, where we put uh, less focus, and then other parties are able to come in and do what they need to do, so to speak, to uh, to make new alliances um, and. Do we, does the French government feel any obligation to then respond to that? You mentioned earlier sort of action, counteraction cycles. How do you, how do you see those challenges? Sorry, it's a couple questions wrapped into one there. A so lot of pick questions. On, pick on what you want to go on. Well, first, uh, France did not withdraw from the Sahel region in general. It withdrew from Mali, and the French narrative uh, has been constant uh, on this issue. That is to say that they would intervene only with the authorization of the UN uh, and uh, only if local governments want this presence. So there was a coup in Mali and the new authority do not want the French uh, to be present, so France decided to leave. Uh, but it's not the end of the French presence in, in the Sahel, it's a reconfiguration of this presence uh, with a reduction of the forces a reduction from approximately 4,500 soldiers to 2,500. Uh, and with more and more focus on Western Africa, because we notice, and we're not the only one, uh, that jihadist group in the Sahel 
try and move west to the Gulf of uh, Guinea. Uh, and um, there have already been attacks in, in Benin, in Togo, in Côte d'Ivoire, uh, and threats to Senegal. And we really have to to try and help these countries to reinforce their capacities to try and defend themselves. And uh, I want to remind that we also have a permanent military presence in certain countries there uh, with more than 1,000 troops or approximately 1,000 troops uh, in Côte d'Ivoire with also 350 troops in Senegal and in Gabon. Mm. Um, so uh, France is not going to, to leave. Uh, that being said, and that's the second part of the answer, you mentioned Wagner. Um, I'm not sure that we can say that Wagner replaced France because we do not operate the same way and we do not do exactly the same thing. It's not easy actually to define precisely the nature of Wagner. Sometimes it's described as a private military company. Sometimes it's described as a half-public being really linked to the Kremlin. Uh, since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, it has become much more clear that it's uh, really linked to the Kremlin. And uh, it's uh, almost can be presented as an extension uh, of uh, the, the public policy of Russia. Um, but again, when you talk to actors uh, who really know well the ground in Africa and so on, they will tell you, well, sometimes they act really as mercenaries, they act as a private companies, they try to uh, grab uh, resources, uh, and uh, uh, you cannot just say that it's basically Russia that, that acts, it's, uh, it's perhaps more uh, subtle uh, than, than that. So what I want to add also on, on Wagner is that it cannot be only presented as a counter-terrorism force. It's true that they are involved in city operations, uh, that they accompany uh, the Malian forces, for instance, in combat, uh, and it has consequences in terms of human rights violations. We've already seen that over the, the past year. Uh, but it also acts partly in Mali, but also in other countries that, like Central African Republic, uh, as a Praetorian Guard, as a really... Uh, uh, a defense, a private defense force uh, for the president and uh, the elite in, more broadly. Um, so, yeah, it's not only a city force, it's also a Praetorian Guard, and in a way, it's also a part of the influence of Russia uh, with actions in the information sphere. Uh, and it's not the only explanation, of course, of the, uh, the growing anti-French sentiment in the region. Uh, French has also its own uh, problems and has to also acknowledge the limits of its actions, of course, uh, but they, they try to uh, put the finger where it hurts and uh, they manage quite well to do it. Okay, thanks for, I think, uh, m making that understanding of, of Wagner's role a bit more nuanced. I think it's it's a story not well told. Indeed, there is still a lot of uh, uncertainty about what they're up to there. So thanks for that. You've been very generous with your time, so I just wanted to ask you one more question. In the context of, of ICCT's uh, role serving the community of Europe in particular, um, we have talked a lot about... Uh, yeah, the, the consequences of the end of the war on terror and the fact that the U.S. and I think broader Western uh, priorities are shifting. But we know also that 
<clears throat> to your point that a CT, the threats will not go away and that some component of our uh, CT machinery, machinery will remain. Can you talk a little bit about how you see opportunities for European values within the CT architecture, specifically focused on human rights, rule of law compliance, um, those kind of values that have been uh, central, at least uh, in name uh, and in many instances in practice to the CT uh, drivers that Europe is putting on the table. Can you tell us if you still see a role for them? And if so, how, uh, how can European policymakers and practitioners make sure that that stays uh, somewhat in the spotlight despite the great power uh, rivalry coming more to the fore? Well, first, I'd say that it's not easy to define European values. Uh, I think that you will have many different answers if you ask uh, different persons in Europe, including political leaders. Yes, true. Even though European values are actually defined in a way in the treaties, uh, in the, the Treaty of Lisbon, the Article 2 mentions several yeah, values. Right. That's, well, that's the yeah. sort of anchor point of the, the question, exactly. So, namely, human dignity, freedom, yeah. democracy, equality, rule of law, human rights. Exactly. Uh, but I'm not sure that many people know the Treaty of Lisbon. <laughs> Um, except from really specialists living in, in the Brussels area or, or people who studied European law and so on. Um, that being said, uh, the second point of my answer is that we should not idealize the 20-year period uh, from 2001 to 2021 uh, because there were violations yeah. of these values and it started pretty early in the global war on terror. Uh, think about Guantanamo, think about the black sites of the, the CIA, think about uh, enhanced interrogation techniques, uh, think uh, about Abu Ghraib, for instance, uh, or the fact that targeting uh, killings have become a norm. Uh, we do not even question that anymore. Uh, so when Zawahiri was killed recently, again, there was this motto, justice was delivered, but it's justice without a judge. Uh, so it's a certain vision of justice, let's, let's put it that way. And even some European countries uh, did targeted killings operations. Uh, former French president actually acknowledged some of this operation in, in the book, and he was criticized for acknowledging them, uh, but not necessarily for doing them. So uh, that's my, my second point. And my third point is that, well, in... This period is going to be tougher and tougher to defend them uh, because China and Russia obviously do not care about these values and they think that it's actually a weapon used by the West uh, to try and colonize intellectually the world. So uh, they do not consider these universal values as universal. And it's going to be yeah, part of a fight to try and keep them on the agenda and to explain that it's really part of the European culture. And when I say that, I have to say that even within Europe, uh, these values are sometimes jeopardized. Think about what's going on in Poland or in Hungary. Uh, the rule of law is uh, really something that we have to keep on fighting for. I think that's really a um, powerful note to end on, actually, today. So thanks for that, Mark. Um, this brings us indeed to the end of today's episode. Uh, we hope you enjoyed listening and uh, look forward to tuning in next time. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
This podcast was created by the International Center for Counterterrorism and is part of the series, The Global Politics of Counterterrorism. You can find more episodes and information about our work on our website, www.icct.nl. This show is available on any major podcast service, so please subscribe and spread the word.